Welcome to Simplify. I'm Ben Schumann Stoller. Simplify is for anybody who's ever taken a close look at their habits, their happiness, their relationships, or their health, or today, their decision-making, and thought, there's got to be a better way to do this. In this episode, you will hear my esteemed co-host, Caitlin Schiller, you guys all know by now, talk to the New York Times bestseller, Jonah Berger. Berger is a marketing professor at the Wharton School at the University of Pennsylvania, where he teaches Wharton's top-ranked online course. He's also the author of two very successful books. One is called Contagious, Why Things Catch On, and the more recent one is called Invisible Influence, The Hidden Forces That Shape Behavior. In this episode of Simplify, Berger talks to Caitlin about the learnings from his most recent book, From Invisible Influence. He reframes a lot of the recent research on decision-making, behavioral psychology, but he does it in kind of cool professor way. It makes you sort of rethink how your brain fundamentally works. After the interview, Caitlin and I talk more about the ideas and the books covered in the episode. We make another book list. So in the next 40 minutes, you should have a pretty good idea about why Caitlin will tell you free will is basically a lie. Okay, let's get into it. Here's Caitlin Schiller and Jonah Berger. Hi, Jonah. It's Caitlin from Blinkist. Hi, how are you? I'm great, thanks. Could you introduce yourself, please, for our listeners? Sure. Uh, my name is Jonah Berger. I'm a marketing professor at the Wharton School at the University of Pennsylvania and best-selling author of Contagious, Why Things Catch On, and Invisible Influence, The Hidden Forces That Shape Behavior. Great. And today we will be talking about some of the concepts in your book, Invisible Influence. Um, so let's just dive right in. I was reading the book earlier, and um, one of the studies that you mentioned very early on is the one in which researchers discovered that just seeing someone more frequently made people like them more. Familiarity leads to liking. Um, this kind of boggled my mind, and it made me wonder, is liking by exposure, is that real? Or is it something we should be critical about, knowing that the more we see someone, we just like them more? Do we truly like them? Yeah, I mean, this is uh, an amazing study, and and research has confirmed this in a variety of different domains uh, of life. So the particular study we're talking about, just uh, in case it's useful to mention, so uh, imagine you're in a, a class, uh, an undergraduate class in college, and at the end of the semester, the professor asks you to help with a quick uh, quick study. He shows you a few pictures uh, of people that look like they could have been in your class all semester uh, and asks you to rate how attractive you find them and how much you like them. And indeed, consistent with what you're suggesting, right? we think that how much we like people or how attractive we find them is based on our preferences, our likes and our dislikes. Uh, you know, we tend to like outgoing people or we tend to like a little bit less outgoing people. Um, but researchers found something interesting. They gave people pictures uh, to rate. Um, and it turned out that those pictures were of people that had been in class, but they weren't students. They were actors. So the professor had asked these actors to come to class different numbers of times across the semester. Some actors came to every class, some actors came to no classes, and the other two actors came some number in between. And what they were interested in is whether the more you see someone, the more you like them. Merely having been exposed to that person more made, would make people like them more. And if you think about this, this makes no sense, right? I mean, you'd say, oh, well, our preferences, our likes, it's all about us, right? It's all about, uh, you know, gentlemen prefer blondes or women like men that are tall, dark, and handsome. We all have our own preferences. If that was the case, there should be nothing, no difference based on how often people showed up to class. But there was a huge and significant difference. The people that showed up to class more often were seen as more attractive and liked more. Uh, and it's not just in this context. In, in dozens of other studies from uh, the more frequently you hear jingles on the radio, the more you hear ads, the more you hear songs even, the more we hear something or the more we see something, the more we like it. Uh, and indeed, this has roots in a very evolutionary place. If you think about children, for example, uh, when they're learning about 
about the world around them. Imagine every time you saw something, you had to figure out whether it was a friend or a foe, whether it was someone that was good and would help you or something dangerous and that you should run away from. Life would be really complicated. And so we've adapted this mechanism where if we've seen something a bunch of times and it hasn't hurt us, it hasn't been a negative thing, well, then we like it a little bit more. The mere fact we've seen it more or heard it more and it hasn't been bad, the more we like it. Wow. Okay, so then this this applies to people, certainly, because you just gave those examples. And this also explains why um, I liked Wrecking Ball after I heard it for the 15th time, but not after the first. But does this also apply to to things like, I don't know, like certain name brands, if I see posters for them around more, will that just automatically give me a greater affinity for it? Certainly. And, and this is one reason that advertisers use repeated exposure. You know, you may be sitting there going, God, I've seen this ad 10 times. Why do they keep showing it to me? I've already, I've already seen it. But one thing they're trying to do is make sure you see it enough times, right? The first time you hear about a product or service, maybe you're not so sure about it. But the second or third or the fourth, merely having heard about it more times, it feels more familiar. And so you like it more. And so companies often make sure that you uh, hear their jingle uh, often enough or you see their brand name often enough because that familiarity can lead to liking. Hmm. That makes a lot of sense. All right. But isn't it also true that people get bored? Don't you get bored of, of seeing the same thing over and over? Does that ever make people like things less? That's exactly right. And, and as with many things, there's certainly a point at which there are diminishing returns. So uh, hearing a song 10 times, for example, more than five times, sure enough, makes you like it. And we often find ourselves hating a song initially, but then tapping our feet to it uh, a couple weeks later. But if we hear that song a thousand times or a million times, particularly played back to back to back, it would get really tiring. Uh, and so part of this is not just the number of times, but how complex that stimulus is and how much time it is in between the fact that we see that stimulus. So uh, think about a spouse or a partner, for example. We don't eventually get tired of looking at them. We don't hate them after we've seen them, you know, the thousandth or the ten thousandth time. And part of that is because they're not a simple stimulus. They're a complex stimulus. They're different every time we see them. And we're not just looking at them. We're talking to them. And there are breaks in between when we see them. They're, we go back to work and then we come back home and, and see them again. So sure enough, if I played you the same ad jingle back to back a thousand times, you would hate it and you would beg me to turn it off. But usually more exposures doesn't hurt until we get really high numbers uh, and unless the stimulus is overly simple. Okay. Is there, do we know what the tipping point is or does it differ for every single, um, every, well, every single thing that we talk about? You know, it really depends, right? So if I showed you a blue square, you'd get tired of it pretty quickly. Whereas if you listen to a song, each time you hear that song, you'd hear something new. Um, and so there's no magic number of, of times that it, that it turns around. But one thing I talk a lot about in the book is this tension is, is you're sort of getting at between familiarity and novelty, right? There is certainly this tension where, you know, if something's brand new, it can be a little scary. Once we've seen it a few times, it becomes more familiar. But eventually something can get boring. And so really there's this sort of optimal distinctiveness or this optimal level of similarity and difference where something is new enough to be novel, but familiar enough to be uh, evoke that warm glow of, of similarity. This week on Simplify, we want to give a shout out to a podcast we've been following for years now. It's David McRaney's podcast, You Are Not So Smart. And the central theme of You Are Not So Smart is that you are unaware of how unaware you are. It's about sort of how the brain works. And, you know, if you're into behavioral psychology, behavioral econ economics, 
or learning about the new psychology studies and that stuff, you need to check out David McGraney's podcast. You will definitely thank us later. So check it out and tell him we say hi. It says in your book that 99.9% of all decisions are shaped by others, but people really, really resist the idea that others influence their decisions so heavily. Can you talk a little bit about why that is? When we hear the word influence, we almost think of it as a dirty word, like a four-letter word, like, no, of course I'm not influenced. You know, Why would I want to be influenced? Influence is a bad thing. We want to think that we influence others. No, none of us want to think that we're influenced by others. Because there's this notion that being affected by others is somehow bad, that choices should come within us, that we should make our own decisions. And so being shaped by others is a bad thing. But what's interesting about that is, sure, there are certainly cases where being influenced by others is bad. But there's also lots of cases where being influenced by others is a really good, valuable, uh, helpful thing. Imagine, for example, if you couldn't make a decision without asking someone else. If you had to pick a restaurant without ever looking online to look at restaurant reviews, or you had to pick a vacation without reading TripAdvisor to see what other people thought, decisions would be a lot more complicated and a lot more time-consuming. Life would be a lot more difficult. And so there are many cases where being influenced is actually a good thing. And further, being influenced doesn't just mean going along. Sometimes we think, well, hey, you know, those people are doing X. I do the opposite, so I'm not influenced by them. But the mere fact of doing the opposite, that is being influenced. You're reacting against what they're doing, and you're doing the opposite thing. And so there are many flavors of influence. Sometimes it attracts, it leads us to do the same things, to imitate others. But sometimes it repels and leads us to do the exact opposite. Uh, if you're out to dinner, for example, and your friend uh, orders a certain entree, you avoid ordering that entree because you want to be different from them. That desire to be different, well, you're still being influenced. You're being pushed in the opposite uh, direction. And so there are many flavors of influence, and it, it's often not a bad thing. It can be quite helpful. Okay. I, you mentioned restaurant reviews. When I was reading the book, I kept thinking about Amazon.com and its product reviews. I, I once dated a guy who was obsessive about reading reviews. He was also an obsessive Amazon shopper. Um, he'd read these reviews and select super carefully, but often he'd just end up buying the product with the most stars and getting it primed to the house. Um, so how can the inertia of, of five-star buying be broken? And would we even want to do that, given all you just said about about influence making things easier for us? Maybe the wisdom of the crowd is already pretty wise? Yeah, so there are certainly cases where where the crowd is wise. Uh, what we're really trying to avoid is that one-star one. The fact that other people have said something bad is an even stronger signal than they've said that, that something is good. But what is important to realize, and, and one reason I wrote the book, is there are some cases where influence can lead us astray. There are some cases where the crowd is not actually wise, and it can lead us to make worse decisions than we might make by ourselves. Uh, psychologists often talk about something called groupthink. Uh, and the idea of groupthink is very simple. You know, uh, sure, crowds can be wise, but they can also lead to worse decisions if everyone just imitates everyone else. So we've all been to meetings, for example, where you were thinking about doing B, but the first person says A and the next person says A, and suddenly you're sitting there going, well, maybe I should go along with the group. And so by not hearing those independent voices, by not having everybody share their opinion, the group ends up making a worse decision than they would have otherwise. They don't consider 
consider the alternatives, they go down a bad road and they end up making a worse choice. And so in those situations, we need to think about, again, how influence works, spot that influence and use it to make better decisions, not worse ones, for example. So if we're making a group decision and we want to avoid groupthink, we need to think about how to structure that decision process to avoid influence. Uh, influence can only happen when people can observe others. Uh, if you can hear someone saying something, you can imitate them. But if you can't hear them or you can't see their opinion, well, you can't imitate it. Uh, and so how do we make those opinions less visible, for example? How do we have people vote in private rather than public or write down their opinions even before they get into the meeting? That'll make sure that they're less likely to budge from those initial opinions and each of those independent voices get heard. But there's even a third way to do it that um, someone suggested that I think is really powerful. And, and that's what's called using a designated dissenter. Hmm. In a meeting, having someone whose job it is to disagree with, with the rest of the group. Now, you might say, well, why, do, why should we have someone that disagrees with the rest of the group? Well, the idea is we want to get a diverse set of viewpoints. That's how we take advantage of the wisdom of crowds and avoid groupthink. But to do that, how do we get everybody to feel comfortable with sharing their opinion? Well, that designated dissenter does exactly that. If, if everyone's saying A, they point out the holes in A and they support B. And what's interesting uh, about that designated dissenter is they don't just make sure those voices get heard, the designated dissenter's voice, but it also frees up everyone else to share their own opinion as well. Because as long as everyone's saying the same thing, well, then it seems like a right answer and you should go along with the group. But if someone dissents, if there's one dissenting opinion, even if they have a different opinion than yours, well, now it's not a right or wrong answer. It's a matter of opinion. And if it's a matter of opinion, well, everyone feels much more comfortable sharing their own Wow, that is a really powerful suggestion. Okay, this designated dissenter, would the rest of the members of a group say this is happening in a meeting? Would they know that this person is playing the role of designated dissenter? Yeah, the challenge of being the designated center, right, is people just think you're disagreeable. And so I think it's often good to tell people, look, this person's job in the meeting is is to disagree with the rest of the group. Some people prefer not to say that. They think it's almost more powerful uh, when the person uh, is seeming like they just naturally disagree rather than being given that role. But the key here is, is either way, really having just someone who's not going along with the group, having at least one dissenting viewpoint will make the rest of them more willing to share their own views. Mm-hmm. Very, very cool. I'm going to bring this to um, the Blinkist organizational circle and, and suggest it. It's a great idea. So groupthink can, and working in groups can be really beneficial. It can also be not so beneficial. What are some times in, say, I don't know, like in like a work situation where group work is more useful? And what are some situations where it's much better to do work more in isolation? Can you Can you talk a little bit about that? Sure. And I think what you're alluding to is sort of the power of peers and motivating us. Uh, how others can either motivate us to work harder or, or others can can demotivate us and, and cause us to give up. Um, and I think this is a really interesting area. We often think that motivation is about either the carrot or the stick, um, but often incentives are, aren't very effective. Uh, they, they only work when uh, they're present. Once you take them away, uh, people will no longer continue to work hard um, and they only work if you incentivize people enough. And so might there be other methods uh, that are more effective uh, than, than the carrot or the stick? Well, some researchers looked into this. Uh, they went around door to door in a small city in, in California asking people to save energy. Uh, and they tried a number of different appeals to get people to save energy. One of the appeals was about money. You know, turn down your heat in the winter, turn down your air conditioning in the summer, 
you'll save a bunch of money. Uh, another appeal was based on saving the environment. And, and a third set of people they, they talked to uh, about being good citizens. Saving energy will help you be a good citizen. Everyone wants to be a good citizen. Uh, so turn down your heat and turn down your air conditioning. And what they found was somewhat surprising. None of the three appeals worked. Uh, but good news, there was a fourth appeal that was effective. And that was very simply uh, that the researchers said, hey, your neighbors are using less energy. So you should think about using less energy as well. Turn down your heat and your air conditioning. And indeed, people did. Merely hearing uh, that their neighbors were using less energy was enough to motivate people to save more energy themselves. Uh, the mere fact their neighbors were doing it led them to do the same thing. Feeling like someone else is doing better than you gets those competitive juices going and makes people work harder. And, and that's really the power of peers. Peers can be a powerful motivating force. Are peers always effective or might sometimes they they be less effective? And, and we actually looked at this uh, in a study a few years ago looking at professional basketball teams. We looked at tens of thousands of professional basketball games to see the score at halftime and the score at the end of the game. And our question was really simple. We wondered, okay, the score at halftime is like a social comparison. People see how they're doing relative to others. So we crunched all the numbers and, and we found something interesting. On average, being ahead is, is a good thing, except in just one place. Teams that were behind by just a single point were actually more likely to win. Teams that were behind by just a little bit, it motivated them to work harder and fired them up to take action. And so it turns out that the size of the discrepancy is really important. Being behind by just a little bit is good. It's motivating. But being behind by a lot is not so good. It can be demotivating. Uh, feeling like you're so far behind doesn't make you feel like you can catch up. It makes you feel like you'll never be able to catch up. And so people give up. And so the real take home for this for, for organizations is think about comparisons. Think about the power of peers, but make sure to use the right comparisons. When we're in the workplace, for example, too often we do a winner take all, you know, the, the best salesperson wins an award or, you know, employee of the month, which is great for people that are close, that feel like they're almost there about to win the award, but it's terrible for the rest of the organization. Everybody else who feels like they're really far behind, they're not going to get motivated and work harder. They're going to get demotivated and give up. And so as we think about the power of peers, we need to use proximal peers, other people that are just a little bit ahead of us. They're much more motivating and they'll lead us to do better as a result. Hmm. Um, I, I'm really surprised about that energy study. I would think, I wonder how they framed the research of this, that is, I wonder how they framed the save the environment argument, because I would think that guilt there would be very, very strong, maybe as strong as competition. Yeah, you know, we think that uh, guilt is motivating, just like we think that money uh, is motivating. And indeed, in the moment, it is. Right. In the moment, the fact that, oh, uh, you know, you feel guilty or you feel like you should save the environment, that might be enough. But the question is not just in the moment. The question is, will it be enough throughout that month to remind people to be motivated to take that action? And, and you know, the key there is, is something I think we talked about the last time we spoke, which is really, will people be triggered to think about it? Not just do they like that message or they agree with the message, but will they think about it near where that behavior is taking place? And we talked about that idea of triggers, which I, I talk a lot about in my last book, uh, Contagious, you know, for motivation to change behavior, we really need to be reminded. And I think that's when peers can be so helpful. You know, you drive, you pull out of your driveway, you, you go into work, you see your neighbors, you see your neighbor's houses, you're reminded of the fact that they're losing less energy, and that encourages you to do it as well. Hey, we are almost done with this first really cool season of Simplify. We want to say thank you to all the people who helped us out. Um, you hear me always saying thank you to Caitlin, Nika, and Odie, but we want to say thank you to other people also. Lots of them. 
Thank you to Emily, Lynn, Sarah, Holger, Nicholas, Jessica, Sandra, Jack, Temi, Natalia, Dinesh, Anatoly, Sarmishta, all of our amazing guests. Right. Helena, Caleb, Teresa, Ben J, Ben H, Ben 1, Ben 2, Ben 3. Ben all the, 7. Every single Ben helped us. Every Ben that lives in Europe has helped us. Every Ben we ever came across wanted to be in on this. Carrie and everybody else that we probably forgot. Hurrah! Thanks, thanks so much. It. And it's cool to see how many people it takes to make something really good. Yeah. There is no I in podcast. <laughs> I was just making sure. I just I just had to spell it out real quick in my head. Okay. But thanks to all those people. And to you. Thanks to our listeners. Also you. Mm-hmm. Let's get back to the interview. You have a section in Invisible Influence that deals with mirror neurons, which are neurons that, when watching someone else perform an activity, activate the same cortical region in ourselves as if we were also performing the action or mimicking them. And I started thinking a little bit about emotional mimicry, for which mirror neurons are also responsible, right? And wondering about its relationship to the contagious outrage that we're seeing in the news today. Is there any corollary there at all? The the rise of I in journalism, there's so much more editorializing. Does emotional mimicry come into play when we read something, or is it only when we can see behaviors? Certainly. And and the social sharing of emotion and emotional mimicry uh, is, is a huge driver of, I think, today's current uh, political climate. Uh, just like we mimic behaviors, just like seeing someone uh, doing something can cause us to do the same, uh, emotions are also contagious. Uh, the fact that someone's angry, uh, seeing them be angry can cause us to mimic their facial expressions and be angry as well. But even hearing an angry story or hearing an angry rant, reading that can evoke that same uh, emotion in us. Lots of research uh, shows that the bonding uh, effect of the social sharing of emotion, uh, you know, if you're sad and you tell me about why you're sad, I get sad as well. And that bonds us together, that deepens our friendship, which is useful uh, in some interpersonal context. But as you're pointing out, it can also have a big downside, right? As we think about today's per, uh, political climate, there's really a lot of negative emotions circulating uh, around. And it's been interesting for me, you know, we, we did a lot of research uh, on how emotion drives things to become viral. Um, uh, you know, emotion is one of the steps from contagious. And we did a big uh, analysis of six months of New York Times articles looking at why articles went viral and, and found that uh, emotion was a big driver of why people share, but not all emotions. Certain emotions are more likely to be shared than others. Uh, and it ends up that it's not about being positive or negative. It's about activation or deactivation. It turns out that certain emotions are activating. They fire us up. They drive us to take action. And these emotions are exactly the emotions that are circulating in today's political climate. It's not about sadness. It's about anger or, or anxiety. And in the United States, for example, Trump, who won uh, the recent election, he ran on a lot of anger and a lot of anxiety, which, uh, whether you like him or not, encouraged people to share his message, made other people feel angry and anxious, and encouraged them to mobilize to take action. Obama, a few years prior, also ran on an activating emotion, but that activating emotion was hope or inspiration. It was a positive emotion, which is also activating and, and fires people up. And so I think the challenge in today's climate is, you know, how do we get past these negative uh, emotions? People talk a lot about false news spread. Uh, but it's not spreading because uh, it's true or false. It's spreading because it evokes these emotions. And so the question is, how can we understand why people share things and use them to get the good stuff to be shared more? If you were called by, I don't know, some sort of tribunal of news organizations around the world to help them develop, I don't know, a policy for sort of ethical use of, of emotion in, in reporting, what, what would you advise them to do or what would you, what would you encourage them to think about? 
That's a a great question and a really tough question uh, to answer. And and I think the challenge is we have to think about this almost in terms of game theory, right? So let's take a a really reputable publication, a big nationwide, you know, internationally known news source Uh, in the United States, for example, like the New York Times or, um, you know, think about, uh, you know, big famous papers uh, in Europe. The challenge is that I think those news outlets don't want to play with emotion. They think that their job is just to tell the news uh, and, and that will be fine. But the challenge is they're competing not only with themselves, but with lots of other online news outlets that are playing on emotion. And so it's not enough just to sit back and say, well, we'll let the truth shine through. Sometimes that's that's not enough. And so I think these outlets need to be smarter and, and savvier about why people share and engineer their stuff to be shared a bit more. Um, you see the New York Times, for example, sharing a, a lot more uh, information now that's useful, you know, tips and tricks for living happier and healthier lives which is very much that idea of practical value from from the steps framework. Um, you know, you see even these papers thinking more about editorials and, and wading into some of these complex discussions because they realize if they don't do it, someone else will. Um, and so, you know, I think like, like any battle, uh, you know, both sides arm themselves. And I think news outlets need to be smarter about how they use emotion. They shouldn't use it flippantly uh, or just to grab people's attention, but they need to recognize that other outlets are using it. And if they don't figure out a way to cut through the clutter, they're going to get left in the dust. Oof, yeah, that's uh, that's that's a tough one. Um, we always struggle when we're publishing at Blinkist too to decide what is really useful and how we can frame it in an honest, useful way for our readers that isn't just you know bombastic and trying to get them to click on things because there is really so much competition out there. So, given how strong social influence actually is, how? How can we make good decisions for ourselves, ones that are reasonably objective and not overly influenced by someone else's preference? What would you recommend to people who want to make sure that they're that they're really making the best decision for themselves and not one that's based upon what the crowd is doing? I, I think that distinction you made is is quite important. The question is not uh, should we not be influenced by others. The question is can we make the best decision? And sometimes that best decision may be following others, and sometimes it may be going the other way. And so the key and, and the, the big reason I wrote Invisible Influence in the first place is to help people spot influence. To me, what's so influ- interesting about influence is that we certainly see it in many places. We see other people dressing the same way and kids listening to the same music. In fact, there's only one place that we never seem to see influence, and that is ourselves. We never seem to realize that we're influenced by by influence. I was talking to a colleague of mine who was lamenting uh, the, the effect of influence on his peers. He's a, a lawyer in Washington, D.C. and was saying, you know, God, all D.C. lawyers are, are the same. The first thing they do when they make partner is they go out and they buy a new BMW. And I said, oh, that, that's interesting. That's funny. But, you know, aren't you a D.C. lawyer and, and don't you actually drive a, a BMW? And he said, oh, yeah, yeah. But, you know, everyone else drives gray ones and I drive a blue one. And what I thought was very interesting about that story is he saw everyone else being influenced, but he didn't see himself being influenced because we think influence is a bad thing. We never realize that it affects us. And so the first step to taking advantage of influence is realizing it occurs, spotting it in the world around us. And only then, once we realize it occurs and realize how it works, can we take advantage of its upsides and avoid its downsides. And so that's really uh, what, what the key to influence is. It's a powerful tool. By itself, it's neither positive or negative. We just have to understand how to use that tool. And if if we do, we can live happier and healthier lives. Excellent. That was great. Jonah, thank you so much for taking the time to talk today. It was great to speak with you again. And I'm looking forward to seeing more of your work in the future. Thanks so much for having me. 
Welcome to the bookend, where we end with books. What's stuck in your mind about the interview? What should people remember? What's the takeaway? Break it down. Well, more than anything, that free will is basically a lie, which (laughs) (laughs) sounds really dark, and maybe it is, but it's a little bit of a comfort. Um, That and that in order to make a really good decision for yourself, it's important that you zoom out a little and consider your reasons really, really candidly for making the choices that you do. Why Jonah Berger? Well, this year I saw that he had a new book coming out, and it was called Invisible Influence, and we all know that there are forces pulling on us as we try to make good decisions, but they're really hard to pinpoint. And based on his earlier work, I felt pretty confident that Jonah could identify some of them for us and make it a little bit easier for us to make better decisions for ourselves. It's very hashtag simplify. Yeah, simplify decision making. Let's make some book recs. We should give a shout out to his book, his first book called Contagious. But maybe we should also talk about his more recent book, Invisible Influence. Yeah, definitely. Um, I loved reading it for the podcast prep. I think the thing that's the most fun about it is all the research he cites. People act in really wild ways. And when you have science to back it up, it becomes way more compelling. Um, Fun fact, my dad narrates this one on the Blinkist app. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, Steve Schiller, we love you. Oh, yeah. <laughs> All right, uh, Made to Stick, is that another book you have? Is this the Heath Brothers again? This is the Heath Brothers again. We owe a lot to this book. Um, Made to Stick explains why some ideas become popular and others just wither and die. It's like what makes content memorable, what helps us retain it. And it's a book that we leaned heavily on at Blinkist when we were creating the Blinks format, right? Correct. And yeah. there's a really sticky bit in there about taglines and having really concrete memorable, sticky content. And they have an acronym in the book called success Mm -hmm. with one S and we won't go through all the different parts of it. But one of the most important things there is about simple and concrete things. And if when you make content, I mean, this is also what we're trying to do with Simplify, really simple, concrete stuff that people can use um, coming from credible sources, of course. Yeah, but also, I mean, Chip and Dan Heath book we've recommended this season, so. All you readers out there, just go buy all the Chip and Dan Heath books. Uh, The next one on your reading list, we have Jonah Berger's book, we have Made a Stick, and then what's the last one you have? It's called Brainfluence, actually. It's by Roger Dooley. Roger Dooley has been writing about neuromarketing, which are ways to access these deeper, unconscious parts of the brain to persuade and sell stuff. He's been writing about this for over a decade now. He has a blog that was pretty popular. Um, I really like this book because it has these ultra simple, wildly easy to apply ways to change your approach to really everything. Copywriting, photography and ads, how to write a sales pitch and lots more based on what seems like otherwise really complex brain science. Cool. So just those three books? We have a bonus book, Ben. Bonus book? A bonus book. This is actually one that you were like, what about Cialdini? Oh, we Cialdini. can't do this yes. without Cialdini. Sorry. Influence. Yep. Everyone should read that book. That's a very important book. That book was so good that he didn't write another book for 30 years because he said... Didn't have to. Yeah. He was like, (laughs) I don't know how to... I wouldn't want it to take away from how much people like the first book. Can't dilute it. Yeah. So, you know, when you go into a shop and the sales clerk says, hi, what can I help you with? And then the next thing you know, you're back out on the street with a sack full of stuff and a a much emptier bank account. (laughs) Did you slip into a fugue state? Was it a rip in time? No, it was influence. And this book explains how that works. Right. Yeah. That was... Good. That was a good description. <laughs> okay, let's get into the outro. Thanks for listening to Simplify. This episode was produced by me, Ben Schumann Stoller, Caitlin Schiller, Mika Mavrodi, and Odie Constantino 
who once won the Mid-Atlantic Regional Text Message Debate Tournament, which serves as a handy reminder to all you out there, never, ever, ever try to win an argument with an audio engineer. (laughs) If you enjoyed this episode or feel you learned something, please consider sending it to someone else who you think might like it. We're really grateful for those of you who've left us ratings and reviews on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, etc., etc. And thank you to everybody who subscribed. We are so glad that you've been with us for this journey. Yeah. And stay tuned for maybe a bonus episode. Maybe a bonus episode. But if you haven't left a review or rating and you did like it, I mean... Now's the time. We've asked a lot. But I guess we could ask one more time. So, Just do it, why please. Not? <laughs> Simplify is made by the same people who make Blinkist, a learning app that takes the world's best-selling nonfiction books and condenses them into focused little capsules of audio and text you can listen to or read in just 15 minutes. We made a voucher code for this episode as well. You can get 14 days free with voucher code BLUEBMW, B-L-U-E-B-M-W, which is one word, and hopefully that will remind you of the anecdote that Jonah brings up in the interview. Or just make you think it's a new rap song. BLUEBMW. <laughs> Otherwise, hit us up at podcast.blinkist.com. We're always there. We check our emails. Caitlin spends most of her day reloading the inbox and responding to people. <laughs> That's not true. But seriously, if you've ever been, I don't know, the kind of person at the meeting who's just objecting to people and people think that you're too negative, you can just tell them you're helping them in their decision making. So let us know how that feels. There you go. Yeah, check back next week because we might actually have a bonus episode. Otherwise, be good. This is Ben checking out. Checking out.